0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Exchange, a podcast that explores the institutional landscape of cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology. I'm your host, Abby Tickcomb. Today, we're sitting down with Matt Walsh, former vice president of Fidelity Investments and current founding partner at Castle Island Ventures. Matt, thank you so much for being here and Thanks giving for us your time. It. I'm excited for it. Uh, so, Matt is currently a partner at Castle Island Ventures. Um, prior to founding Castle Island Ventures, Matt was a vice president at Fidelity Investments, um, where you led a number of uh, the firm's blockchain and crypto asset initiatives. Um, while at Fidelity, you also led the creation and oper- operationalization and the investment strategy of a private fund focused exclusively on the crypto asset sector. So very excited to have you on the exchange today. Um, would just love to jump into it and kind of just tell me about your background. How'd you get into the space? I read that you, you know, you did crypto during, you got into crypto during business school. Is that true?
1: <laughs> yeah. So thanks for having me on. Um, yeah. So my background was, I so I grew up around Boston area. went to Babson. um was actually a management consultant mm-hmm. after college. And I went back and got my MBA from 2012 to 14. And it was while I was there that, you know, I had some time on my hand um, that I started paying more attention to Bitcoin. You know, Mm -hmm. it was in the headlines a lot. There was the Mt. Gox uh, situation that happened. And so a lot of situation, (laughs) a great way way to describe it. (laughs) um, Silk Road had happened around that time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was noticing a lot of the. Investors that, whose blogs I would read were getting into it. And, you know, there's some companies being formed, Coinbase, you yeah. know, I think, had been formed a couple of years earlier. And so it was down there that I really just started to go down the rabbit hole of mm-hmm. understanding Bitcoin and you know, I was fortunate that I had a little bit of time to, to explore and to yeah. read whatever I could on the topic.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So then how did you um, what brought you to Fidelity? And, and more on what your role was there um, beyond what I said in the...
1: Yeah, so I joined Fidelity really um, not in a crypto capacity at all okay. initially. So I w- was a management consultant by training and mm-hmm. uh, Fidelity has a great internal uh, strategy consulting group. And so I actually joined Fidelity to join that group as a management consultant. Mm-hmm. And one of the first projects that I had the good fortune of working on was called scenario planning. And it's essentially looking 10 years into the future and imagining what Fidelity's reaction would be if certain events happen. And so some of those events are technology driven. And so Mm -hmm. we were looking at, um, you know, the automation of certain functions through artificial intelligence Mm -hmm. and and blockchain was on that list. And so Mm -hmm. You know, I was very fortunate that I was in the right place at the right time. To yeah, really. You know, knew a little bit about Bitcoin initially and, mm-hmm. you know, could, could approach it from that perspective. Our initial lens on it was Bitcoin allows for a peer-to-peer settlement and a transaction without a trusted third party. And so mm-hmm. uh, could you imagine a world where that type of a technology would be useful in the financial services space? And I think the answer is, you know, probably yes. Right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of... Uh, trusted third parties and intermediaries in those type of businesses. And so it was from that perspective that we initially just got interested in it.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah. And yeah. you just started jumping into it and then growing in it. Right.
1: Yeah. And so it was, um, you know, so we had some people at the firm that were, uh, you know, really eyes wide open on the opportunity yeah. here. And we uh, we really just took the opportunity to step back and try to learn as much as we could about mm-hmm. it. It wasn't necessarily a a grand strategic plan when we first started. Uh, It was more of, here's an interesting technology. This could have some radical implications on our business model, uh, you know, if it grows and if it, you know, effectuates the change that we think it might. And so we we just spent a lot of time trying to get smarter about it. And that manifested itself in a lot of different ways, uh, primarily just, you know, education and, you know, bringing in some people to, do some guest lectures initially, and eventually conducting experiments, and uh, kind of snowballed from there.
0: Yeah, well, it also manifested in Fidelity becoming one of the, like the most forward-thinking, you know, financial firms in the crypto blockchain space now, too, right? I mean, you know, we we I, I read about Fidelity all the time. I mean, from Abigail Johnson, who's adamantly supported Bitcoin and crypto in general from the beginning. Um, there's a launch of Fidelity Labs, and I their inclusion in IC three. Um, you know, even talks of you know Fidelity starting their own exchange which is uh, funny if you could talk, uh, touch on that. But, you know, how did one of the largest asset management firms, I mean, what is it? It was managed over $2.4 trillion, you know, per year or something. You know, how did how did you guys become so prominent and progressive in the space? Um, because it's, it's hard for it just to be eyes wide open and jump right into it. You know, what, what supported that and what led you
1: guys? So, um, yeah, good question. I think there's a lot to unpack there. I think the first yeah. is that... <laughs> um, fidelity has always been very forward-thinking in terms of new technologies very early to adopt early to experiment mm-hmm. and early to innovate and that's across the board um, you know the the chairman had you know, has a great uh, history of of that um, you know I think the the initial angle with Bitcoin and blockchain was really just to try to understand it a little bit more and so I think uh, when you think about the things that have made that successful with infidelity I think that it's the the buy-in from the very top that that exploration is worthwhile Hmm. Um, and so that was always part of yeah, I always felt when I was at Fidelity that I had the the permission to explore and the permission to really deeply understand something uh, within the space, and so I think that that's a big part of the the ethos. And uh, certainly, Fidelity has been very forward thinking as it relates to permissionless public blockchains and mm-hmm. uh, open minded about the fact that that could be a, a transformational change mm-hmm. uh, that could you know that could really have a big impact on all sorts of industries, but uh, certainly financial services.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned that, uh, I love that you said that exploration was in the ethos, right? Yeah. That's a great way to put it. Um, but how did you, um, in your work, also contribute to this trend of staying um, staying exploring, um, to continue exploring, continue being open-minded, um, and how much of it was a challenge, if, if it was any challenge, to gain that internal support um, you know, for various crypto investments and holdings?
1: Yeah, so I think the the most important thing to highlight there is just that uh, a lot of these, you know, big financial institutions that were early looking at this space, uh, there wasn't that broad support from upper management. I yeah. think you've seen a lot of uh, frustration from, you know, some of the junior ranks at some of those big firms Um So, I think it's important to have that in place as a foundational building block to just have the permission to explore this thing. I think there's a lot of career risk in the Bitcoin blockchain uh, Mm -hmm. sector. And it's not, you're not going to find a lot of people that are out there kind of banging the drum for this technology, particularly, you know, 2014 after Mt. Gox, after Silk Road. Um, there's some reputation risk. There's some. Uh, there's career tons risk. of
0: reputation risk, right. right? Yeah, yeah.
1: You know, and so I think from my perspective, there was, uh, there would have been a zero percent chance of having a meaningful experience at a firm unless there was that support from the very top levels of the firm that you know we should explore this, we should mm-hmm. seek to understand this. It's not that we need to have a, a fully baked go-to-market strategy for. This technology is not not at that point yet, mm-hmm. um, but there was the permission to to explore it, and so I think that that uh, is certainly no credit to myself in anything that I did. Right? So there's a you know there's some people over at Fidelity uh, that have had a meaningful uh, impact on that culture, and I think yeah. that's the most important part. And mm-hmm. you, and you don't see that. At a lot of places. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. Uh, so how did how did your work um, transform? So at the beginning it was just oh I kind of know a little bit about this, and then you're given the permission to explore. So what piqued your interest? What did you transition into? What was your work? What was it transforming into as you were learning and as you were exploring?
1: Yeah, so we we started with exploration. And so we started essentially having these uh, steering committee style meetings with uh, executives at Fidelity, bringing in Mm -hmm. guest speakers, bringing in entrepreneurs who were building things, trying to educate. Uh, That transformed over time. We eventually started a labs team um, Mm -hmm. coming out of that initial scenario planning effort. And we started doing some experiments and so mm-hmm. standing up a mining operation Fidel has been public about that uh, standing up some uh, you know just basically experiments at one point there was uh, there was an experiment to have a, a retail wallet um, yeah you know, it's, and so some of these things are, you know, just testing out new ideas, and so over time, um, I actually transitioned to the investing side of the house, private equity uh, gotcha.
0: you know,
1: business unit at Fidelity, uh, looking at early stage companies as well as er- you know crypto assets directly, mm-hmm. and so um, that was uh, a, you know, a mix over time, um, mm-hmm. and, and we got there, uh, and so that uh, that was kind of my primary thrust towards mm-hmm. the end of my tenure at Fidelity.
0: Yeah, awesome. So. Well, so I guess now that leads perfectly into, you know, you know, your transition into founding Castle Island Ventures, yeah. right? So doing specifically investing. So what spurred that transition? Um, you know, what was behind it? And tell me more about it.
1: Yeah, so I think the the whole crypto asset investing industry has been an interesting thing to to just look at from 2014 to now, right? Yeah, so oh we've my seen, gosh. Uh, I think there's been a lot of at first it was just bitcoin then Uh we went through this private blockchain hype cycle a lot of companies being formed around permissioned private blockchains uh we saw the launch of ethereum and subsequently the erc20 token standard Mm -hmm. uh really spur a lot of investing activity a lot of crypto hedge funds being created to access tokens and to hold these um you know these protocol tokens directly um over time, I think my, you know, my view on this has shifted somewhat, but maybe not too much. I think that there's tremendous opportunity with some of these open crypto asset mm-hmm. protocols, uh, you know, particularly the ones that are focused on the non-sovereign money use case, things yeah. like Bitcoin. Um, I'm less optimistic about. About ICOs and so to uh, (laughs) isn't everyone? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. To to answer your question, I think the so Castle Island Ventures is really formed around the thesis that we are at an inflection point for for public blockchains. Yeah, so your investment
0: Um, thesis is very specific in public blockchains.
1: That's right, and so uh, we are very focused we are exclusively focused on public blockchains and supporting infrastructure companies Mm -hmm. and uh, my partner nick carter and i have the view that we are really coming into this age where uh these companies, these infrastructure companies are really necessary in order to promote uh, everyday users actually using these platforms, Mm -hmm. in order to get large financial institutions actually on board with uh, holding these assets, transacting in these assets, getting data off of these networks. And we think it's a fundamental paradigm shift. It's a tremendous opportunity. And so the the idea behind Castle Island was form a venture capital firm exclusively focused on the public blockchain crypto asset space, mm-hmm. uh, making investments primarily in equity investments in infrastructure companies uh, mm-hmm. at the outside.
0: Yeah. So when so with a background in you know crypto assets, basically what you, what mm-hmm. you were doing at Fidelity um, and the rise of so many different ways to invest. Um, we're talking about ICOs. We're talking about just in general mm-hmm. um, DAOs, whatever. Right. Yeah. What what. Why go into equity investments? Um, there's so many opinions on equity investments right now um, in VC. People think VC is dead. People think it, yeah. it, it, it doesn't matter. You know what else can you add um, as a VC? So why go into equity investments in infrastructure plays? And what's your opinion on you know the landscape for early stage equity investments in blockchain infrastructure plays?
1: Yeah, good question. So I think to, to give a little bit of background, it, there have there have been something like 250 crypto hedge funds that have popped up in mm-hmm. the past uh, 18 months. And uh, a lot of these funds are focusing on ICOs and buying into tokens and, yeah. uh, you know, utility tokens, app coins, you, know, you name it, base level protocols. Um, you know, that is that is interesting. I, I have a very pessimistic view on the capital raise structure behind ICOs. I mm-hmm. think that a lot of these uh, ICOs have securities law violation look and feel to them. A lot of them are simply non-dilutive capital raises by the founders. And I think most importantly, if you do any level of technical diligence on a lot of these networks, uh, they would require a monumental feat in computer science to even be possible as Mm -hmm. as a platform. Um, And so we look at a lot of these things and say a lot of these ideas are really interesting ideas. And, you know, certainly a lot of them are good use for public blockchains. I don't think that a lot of them are good uses for having their own native token. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't think that we're going to live in a world where there are 1,500 different crypto assets, cryptocurrencies, whatever you want to call them, and uh, and that you need to call on specific ones to do certain features. And so what I mean by that is... um, you know, do I think we're going to live in a world where I have a wallet with 37 different types of tokens in it and I'm going to, every time I want to do file storage, have to go through a process of, you of know, mm-hmm. clicking on a token? I, I don't think so. Um, but what I am very confident on is that some of these networks, these base-level networks, will be uh, fundamental in the sense that there will be those services built on top of them without the need for a native token. Mm-hmm. Um but to maybe back up entirely, I think regardless of your worldview on how many of these assets are going to be, mm-hmm. which ones have any validity or not, uh, and whether or not they're actually uh, securities laws compliant you know, in raising them, uh, whatever your view on the 1,500 or so assets, I think there is a level of market infrastructure that needs to exist regardless of Yeah, regardless one, right? of anything so,
0: <laughs> working or not.
1: <laughs> it, it, right. And so when I think about that market infrastructure, a lot of it just does not exist yet. And mm-hmm. so uh, I'm thinking about things like custody, uh, things like mm-hmm. custodial workflow to make holding private keys easier for institutions and you know less dangerous. I'm thinking about exchanges and thinking about order management platforms, portfolio analytics. How do you trade these things? How do you get access to them? How do you mm-hmm. get them into your custodial setup? Uh, and then the other category that you know, is very necessary and completely immature is data. And so market data, network data, who's actually using some of these underlying blockchains, is there any utility on any of these chains? Is it mm-hmm. all speculation? Or do we actually see people economically uh, transacting on them? Uh, and so we have the view that that infrastructure is necessary regardless of which platform emerges. And mm-hmm. we're, we're really at the early stages in, in some of that infrastructure. And so that's where we're, we're focusing mm-hmm. uh, the bulk of our time.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that... Uh I'm with you that's my opinion as well Um, you know that infrastructure needs to be built before you can put all these utility tokens on it that nobody's going to use yeah
1: I mean you hear this um, you know you hear a lot of people say you know with internet uh, comparisons, like what year are we in? Are we in 1994? Are we in 1989? And um, I'm not sure, but I think there's a lot of things that have the f- look and feel of trying to do like a streaming video service on the internet of 1994. I mean, yeah, I think a absolutely. Lot, it, well, that's like literally what people are doing, <laughs> right. you know,
0: like decentralized video sharing, you know I mean? right. like streaming or whatever. That's actually like an app that
1: right? Right. You buy tokens for. Right. And so a lot of these ideas will happen. It's just a matter of time and a matter of, uh, do they need their own token or yeah. can they be built on top of something else?
0: Absolutely. So uh, so let's talk, you, you mentioned something um, that I would love to segue into. You said, you know, there's been like 200 plus crypto funds popping up, right? Yeah. So there's been um, a bunch of crypto funds popping up, crypto hedge funds, whatever. But there's also a lot of early stage blockchain VCs. I mean, um, some that are ranging from you know, like Underscore and Pillar in, you know, Boston to specifically like Polychain Capital, Blockchain Capital. So so what? how do you guys see Castle Island Ventures differentiating? Um, what do you believe differentiates you from all of these other funds that are popping up?
1: Yeah, uh, good question. So, you know, I think if you look at the crypto slash blockchain, whatever you want to call it, category of funds, I think... Uh, there are very few that are structured in a venture capital construct. Mm-hmm. And so uh, partially that's because they're buying liquid kind of tokens and they need to meet uh, certain redemptions and, and whatnot. So we're differentiated in the fact that we are uh, exclusively focused on the permissionless open blockchain space. Yeah. Uh, and we're a venture firm. And so uh, we think that that's very founder aligned. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we are looking to partner with entrepreneurs for a very long period of time. Uh, and this is all we do. Uh, And so we're not looking at other categories of fintech. We're not looking at enterprise software. We are focused on the permissionless blockchain infrastructure segment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So,
0: yeah, that's... It's definitely something that's very specific to you guys, I, I believe. And um, so, tell me more about the fund too. So, what is your check size? Um, we know your thesis. What's mm-hmm. the structure? Mm-hmm. Um, and are there any portfolio companies that you're, you know, you're particularly excited about that are building something
1: awesome? Yeah, and so we, um, you know, we just launched.
0: Yeah, uh, oh, oh, yeah, guess are super new <laughs> for everybody out
1: there. Um, <laughs> when
0: did you close? You closed a
1: couple weeks ago.
0: Congratulations! Yeah, <laughs> you. Yeah.
1: So, um, you know, we don't have a, a ton of portfolio companies mm-hmm. to, to talk about yet, but uh, we are. We anticipate doing 15 to 20 uh, equity investments over Mm -hmm. the life of our fund. Uh, We are writing checks anywhere from $250,000 to a million, and Mm -hmm. we're trying to be very early. So we're going to be seed focused. Our first investment is into a company called Flipside Crypto, uh, which meets a lot of these things that we've been talking about, about market infrastructure. They're a data-focused company, uh, started here in Boston, uh, a great team that we've uh, worked with in the past. And so uh, that's our first announced portfolio company and uh, should have a couple more to announce (laughs) in coming weeks.
0: Awesome. What gets you excited? So if, it, you know, they, it hasn't come through, through your portfolio yet because you're so early, but when you, when you see decks come across, um, you know, or you see projects happening in the space, you know, what, what are you, gets you really excited? What ki- types of infrastructure for what? Uh, I know you mentioned data. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is it identity? Is it data? Um, is it exchanges? You know, what's really getting you excited in the space?
1: Yeah, and so the, the thing that excites me the most is if I open a deck and they're not doing a token sale. Um, that's, that's pretty exciting. Check. Yeah, right, right. The, um, uh, I, uh, data is probably the one to highlight. So mm-hmm. I um, I think that we're in a very, very early stage uh, for this technology. There are a lot of use cases that will happen. It's clear that there's a couple of use cases that are here and ready to go. And I, yeah. you know I think the first one is around... Uh, store of value, you know, non-sovereign uh, money, mm-hmm. and so uh, the use case of getting access to Bitcoin on a you know buy-and-hold basis, I think, is a really important one. And I mm-hmm. think that there's a lot of infrastructure just to support that use case. And you know, from there, that infrastructure will be deployable against any number of other use cases, whether that be identity or you mm-hmm. know, supply chain management, or you know, the list goes on and on. Um, and so companies that are really uniquely focused on servicing a, a particular use case that is uh, actionable and then, you know, mm-hmm. in the next couple of years. And so uh, that data space is, is really interesting to us, uh, particularly, I'd say, on the network data side. Mm-hmm. And so companies that are uh, seeking to understand the actual economic activity happening on the blockchains which is hard it's I'm not talking about the trading activity okay. I'm talking about how many people use this platform like yeah. how many nodes are there connected how many addresses actually do transactions on the underlying blockchain mm-hmm. uh, I think the you know the kind of dangerous thing is you see a lot of these projects these quote unquote permissionless open blockchains and you really try to understand is anyone actually using them and the answer is no I mean mm. there's very negligible transaction size on the underlying chain happening. It's all just exchange kind of trading on the speculation use yeah. case. And so I think companies that can surface some of those insights are going to go a long way and really do an important service to the community in terms of keeping people appraised on these things. It's the equivalent of having fundamental analysis on them. So it's you know, yeah. the equivalent of really deeply understanding uh, you know these things, I guess you could compare it to, a, like, a fundamental equity research type mm-hmm. of a, a thing where it's, is there anything actually going on on these chains? Mm-hmm.
0: So we've been talking a lot about Bitcoin, um, but let's talk, let's talk regulation and compliance for a second. Uh, what are your thoughts on the SEC's recent denial of Bitcoin ETFs, right? Um, so what do you think needs to happen or change to get one of these proposals passed in the near future?
1: Yeah, so... Um, I wasn't surprised at all about the you know the various rejections. I think um, you know if you think about what is going to be necessary for the Bitcoin ETF or any other ETF based on a crypto asset to be approved there are, there's two really important things. One is the emergence of a qualified custodian. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. what I'm talking about there is a an institution that is capable of holding crypto assets on behalf of insti- other institutions, mm-hmm. so pension funds, endowments, you know, big uh, institutional investors. And and that doesn't exist yet in the crypto space. And so yeah. that's a regulatory framework that certainly will be achieved. But there are certain hurdles around... Uh, getting the SEC comfortable with the definition of a good control location and mm-hmm. the, you know the safekeeping mm-hmm. of these assets certainly not insurmountable it's just that we're we are not there yet um, and so I think within the next couple of years we'll see the emergence of several custodians that enter the space some of them will be startups some of them will be existing financial institutions that um, you know see the opportunity to provide the service mm-hmm. and so that will be um, that will be happening the second thing uh, if you read the SEC's uh, denial is really around the spot market and particularly around the manipulation of the underlying spot market for Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, as recently as like 18 months ago, you know, I think 90 percent of the trading volume for Bitcoin was in China. And these are not venues that are regulated in the United States. These are mm-hmm. not venues that have uh, spot market surveillance sharing agreements in mm-hmm. place with each other. Um, and so over time, I think we have seen the maturation of the exchanges in the crypto asset space. That will continue to evolve, and we will start to see, uh, and we're already starting to see, regulated venues come in and offer a spot market product. Mm-hmm. And so once we have enough uh, meaningful traction, meaningful volume in the spot market on those venues, as opposed to unregulated venues that are outside the United States, I think some of the concerns that the SEC has addressed around the surveillance sharing and the manipulation of the, the potential manipulation of the spot market um, become addressed. And so if you pair the qualified custody um, Piece with the regulated spot market piece, mm-hmm. I think a lot of the the concerns are alleviated, and we probably do end up seeing a, a Bitcoin ETF mm-hmm. uh, approved. Um, you know, it could take could take a year, could take two years. I'm not a prognosticator on that front, but I mm-hmm. don't think that it's an insurmountable uh, obstacle. Mm-hmm.
0: Moving off of regulation, now regulation into exchanges, what are your thoughts of regulation in centralized exchanges and regulation in decentralized exchanges, which has been a recent trend? We've seen a bunch of them popping up. Do you have any opinions on that?
1: Yeah, I, th- I uh, think that decentralized exchanges are really interesting. I'm mm-hmm. constantly seeking to understand them more, um, yeah. I would say, I'm, you know, I'm reading as much as I can about that. I think if you think about the, maybe just to, to back up, I mean. The way that I view a decentralized exchange is this is a really unique uh, blockchain-enabled platform. I think this is something that you could not do before blockchain platforms. Essentially, what it is is allowing for a peer-to-peer value transfer without a a third party. Mm -hmm. And... You know that's exciting. I think that where there will be some challenges there on the decentralized exchange front is around knowing the other side of the trade and yeah. so some of the platforms that I've looked at uh, don't have the ability for you to know who you're transacting against mm-hmm. and I think the regulators will potentially going to have an issue with that mm-hmm. and uh, I think that the most successful companies and most successful entrepreneurs will be the ones that figure out a way to uh, to weave that path and to make their platforms uh you know, capable of being used, and you know, mm-hmm. some of these things. And uh, where I'm probably the most optimistic about decentralized exchanges is not necessarily for the trading and speculation use case, but potentially for the use case of um, applications that require mm-hmm. the exchange of of tokens to function. And I think that that's somewhere where you know that's uh, just now starting to become a reality. And mm-hmm. so, uh, very optimistic and. Continue to to look for um, you know ways to deepen my knowledge in that space. Mm-hmm.
0: Cool. So uh, to wrap up here, since we're running out of time, I wanted to ask you a higher level question. Um, but what is your long term view on this market as a whole, um, and how do you view blockchain technology evolving over the next five years or even ten years?
1: Yeah, I uh, I'm very very bullish, as you might imagine. Yeah. I wouldn't have started. Uh, a yeah, fund. you wouldn't have started. <laughs> <fun>. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think uh, you know what i hope and what I, I think is that 10 years from now i'll look back and say how crazy was it that we started a blockchain fund like that you know that's basically the equivalent of saying we're going to do a fund and we're going to focus on the internet and, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, and every company ended up being internet enabled and yeah, yeah. Um, everyone ended up using it and so it just became this fundamental fabric and i think the What I'm most excited about for some of these early blockchain projects, Bitcoin kind of being the the best of the bunch, is that this is just an innovation that wasn't possible from a computer science perspective when the internet was being built. And so we're playing catch up here. We didn't have the ability to have value transfer in a permissionless way that anyone in the entire world can use and build things on top of. That wasn't possible with value transfer when the internet was being built. Mm -hmm. And Satoshi Nakamoto figured out a way to do it and now we're all kind of reaping the benefits and every industry will be impacted by this. And so this is a situation where 10 years from now, I'm of the belief that, um, you know, we'll it'll be hard to find a company that hasn't had a meaningful integration with a blockchain open you know, network. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm massively optimistic. I think that we'll have some infrastructure companies being built now. Uh, that get to the scale of a, a Google or a Facebook yeah. and uh, have that widespread name recognition really because they start with the fundamental first principles of you can have this value transfer and it's not a bolt on. They're going to build uh, companies that are uniquely suited uh, you know, to interact with these mm-hmm. systems. Mm-hmm.
0: And so, talking about Google and Facebook and these, um, you know, just larger firms in general—not just like Fidelity and the financial firms, but other big giants who just dominate data and dominate, you know, our current—if um, you say internet, our current web, right? Yeah. Uh, how do you how do you see them being adapting or being disrupted um, with the rise of the technology over the next ten years?
1: So, there's been an interesting narrative over the life of blockchain and you know Bitcoin um, around. Uh, the big opportunity here for a while you know, was thought to be disintermediation of custody banks and the DTCC yeah. and financial post-trade settlement. I think, uh, by and large, that was what the private blockchain kind of hype cycle and eventually mm-hmm. bust was all about. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not where I'm excited. I don't think that that is the fundamental uh, breakthrough here. To me, that feels like a little bit of just sprinkle a little blockchain on an existing process. Mm-hmm. And um, that's incremental innovation. Where I see the most um, disruption happening would be in business models that are centered around being data monopolies. Mm-hmm. And so if you think about what Google and Facebook. What that whole business model really is is, uh, give us all of your personal data, and uh, we're going to monetize it on mm-hmm. the back end. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the service is free, but um, actually, you know, you're the product, and so yeah,
0: you get um, a good user experience. so yeah, yeah. like that's it, <laughs> right?
1: But uh, we have all your data, and you don't know who we're selling it to, and uh, you have no idea what we're doing with it. So, that is uh, something that could be uniquely addressed through permissionless blockchain Mm -hmm. networks. Mm -hmm. Uh, The idea of having self-sovereignty is really fundamental to this technology. And so the way that that will manifest itself, I believe, over time is the first kind of killer use case for the technology is self-sovereignty over your money. Mm -hmm. And so the ability to hold your own money and transfer it to anyone you want, whenever you want, um, that's a real fundamental breakthrough. Mm -hmm. Um, But what if you could do that with your data as well? And so... Uh, these data monopoly business models really stand to suffer if we can get the right infrastructure in place so that people can safely hold these things, safely manage their data, um, exchange it the way that they need to exchange it. The user interfaces will need to evolve. I mean, this is going to be a, an evolutionary progression here. But I think if you think about where it needs to start, it needs to start with the market infrastructure of, how do you hold these things? How do you yeah. tr- trade them? How do you get data off of them? Eventually, we're going to to a place where you can build fantastic user experiences that are just way better than uh, you know some of these data monopolies, and the value proposition will be will be there. And so, when I think about the most imperiled types of businesses, it is those data monopolies. Mm-hmm. I mean these uh, these companies don't necessarily have an obvious move when it comes to permissionless blockchains because uh, taking a step. To integrate with them or taking a very positive, proactive step to become a part of these communities is antithetical to what they stand for right now. Mm-hmm. There, mm-hmm. this is classic innovators' dilemma in the sense that yep. uh, they would need to cannibalize their own business model to to do anything. Yep, um, and it's not clear to me that they're willing to do that, uh, and it's not clear to me that it's economically rational to do. That.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Well, that's great. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us. We're going to wrap it up here um, and uh, see you guys soon. Thanks. The exchange is sponsored by Everbloom, a decentralized crypto asset exchange with the intelligence, liquidity
1: and trust institutional investors need.